How many of you were in here yesterday? Okay, and then we have some new friends in here as well. For those of you who weren't here yesterday, my name's Holly. Um, my husband and I work with Asher and Betty um, here in the United States. We're based here in the U.S., and we help them uh, with their ministry that is overseas. Asher and Betty started a nonprofit organization in Israel called Revive Israel. And all of you should have received one of these color uh, focus sheets in your packet. That's this ministry, just so that you know. You've seen a lot of flyers, you've seen a lot of brochures, and I just want to make sure you make the connection. The first priority of Revive Israel is to preach the gospel. Isn't that good? It's good. And Asher has a three-pronged approach. He believes that you preach the gospel, and you plant congregations, and then you disciple people through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the thrust of Revive Israel. It's a ministry with a heart for revival in Israel. I'd like to apologize to those of you who were here yesterday, and I announced that the dinner sign-up for the Shabbat dinner with Asher was going to be afterwards out there, and they didn't start that till 7 o'clock, and some people missed that opportunity because of that delay, and I apologize that I didn't know the time when they were going to be taking those sign-ups. We'd like to keep in touch with you. The purpose of coming here is to build relationships and to let you know what's going on in Israel. And we try to make communication an ongoing part of the ministry. In order to do that, we opened up a website. It's www.revive-israel.org. At that website, we archive all the articles that Asher sends out by email each week to those that sign up to be on his email list. Those articles range on a whole myriad of hot topics within the Christian community, the Messianic community, and just whatever is on God's heart that Asher's hearing and writing about at the time. We um, encourage you to go to the website, to download those for free, to share them with your friends, to pass them out, and I think you will find them a valuable resource. If you would like to sign up to receive those email updates, we have a sign-up table right outside. When you put your name and regular mailing address down, you get to receive the Tikkun newsletter, which is a quarterly newsletter that is a publication that has Dan Juster, Eitan Shishkoff, and Asher Intrader in it. You'll be receiving articles from all three, as well as a few others. It's a good resource material as well. The email updates come out about once a week. Usually Asher writes an article, and sometimes he includes confidential prayer requests that will help you to target and focus your prayers. To encourage you to do that while we're here, because it's so much easier, for for as many as I have left, I'm trying to give away these tapes that Asher's done. It's called Nick at Night. They're free if you sign up at the book table. It's a great... um, kind of a tease for his book, From Iraq to Armageddon. In Nick at Night, he talks about how Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And he shares a little bit of his personal testimony of how he became a believer in Jesus. And then he looks forward and shows you how his own personal perspective impacts his view of the end times. And um, then he wrote the book, from Iraq to Armageddon, which is an, a much more extensive uh, understanding of that end times perspective. 
so I encourage you to get it. If you'd like to partner with Asher and Abedi and Revive Israel and what they're doing, please see me afterwards. We'd love to work with you and keep in contact with you. And there's so many good projects, new staff coming on the ministry and new projects that are opening up. They're starting a new discipleship training school in Jerusalem. And uh, God is doing good things, isn't he? Hallelujah. Asher and Trader. Thank you. If you got this sheet... Just want to make sure that you understand that's, that's my wife there, not my daughter, in case you didn't understand that. All right. All right. Hallelujah. Well, let's take out our Bibles and turn to Colossians 1. I want to um, do a brief teaching here um, about the history of the life of Jesus and, um, and use that as a platform after that to explain some uh, prophecies that we were getting in our prayer time this morning with our, with our prayer team, share you some of the visions and things that we were getting. So let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Sometimes people want to uh, ask me ahead of time what I'm going to teach on on a certain day or a conference. And really, I only have one topic. And that's speaking about Yeshua, about Jesus. He's the only topic that I know of. And we never get tired of him. He's new every time. Glory to God. So let's look in verse 14. Here, speaking of Yeshua, we're reading Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, and in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, which is the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. Glory to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you that Yeshua might be given glory today. Lord, that our eyes might be opened up to understand who he is. Holy Spirit, we ask for your anointing here and your presence. We can do nothing without you, Lord. And we ask you to fill us up and open our eyes today. That, they might, that these might be spirit words and not just words of human thought. We thank you for that, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. Well, as I said, um, all I know how to teach about is Yeshua. Every teaching I do, it's just Him. But I find that that topic just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, I noticed that every time that I read the Bible, I mean every single day and every single devotion, whether I'm reading the, the Law or the Prophets or the Writings or the New Covenant Scriptures, 
Every time I see something more and more about Yeshua, he just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, I think the whole Bible is just a consistent unfolding revelation of who he is. Not starting in Matthew chapter 1, but in starting in Genesis chapter 1. And not ending with the end of the book of, of John, but ending at the end of the book of Revelation. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, the story of the Bible is a steady unfolding and an understanding of who He is. That's through the Bible. But it also happens in our own lives. Every day, as we grow in faith, we learn that picture of Jesus just every day just clicks out a little bigger, a little bigger, a little bigger. So the unfolding revelation of who Jesus is, is not just through the Scriptures, it's also as we develop in our own lives. There's an unfolding as we understand more and more about God, we understand more and more about who Yeshua is. And it just gets so big, it gets to the point where you say, just He's just everything. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are all in Him. He's the beginning of the end. He's the top, the bottom. He's, every way you look at it, it's all Him. That's a little secret. I just taught you all the theology you'll ever need to know. You never need to go to Bible school. That was it. Systematic theology, standing on one foot, as we say. But that's really the whole story. And uh, so as you look at the Bible... The Bible tells us more. I'm going to divide that into three parts now. It tells us more about who Yeshua is. It tells us more about how great He is. And it also tells us where He is in the Bible. And I want to talk to you about that today a little bit about where He was in the Old Testament. Because you get to know more about His personality. You need to see how big He is in covering everything. And you need to find out where He is in the plan of God. Because if you say, well, I don't, I don't know if I see Jesus on every page, but He's there. So you have to learn where and how to see Him. You know, as Jesus was teaching one time and He said, he said in John 3, well, did you know that when, when, when Moses lifted up the serpent in the, serpent in the wilderness, that was talking about me? You need a revelation to see Jesus in that. But you realize, He wasn't just talking, He wasn't saying, when, you lift up, when they lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that was talking about me. He wasn't talking about that at an instance. He was giving a method of Bible inst- instruction. He was saying every time you see a pole in the Old Testament, every time you see a piece of wood in the Old Testament, every time you see a tree in the Old Testament, every time you see somebody hanging on something, that's all Him. And you begin to look at that and you begin to see Him in every place. Yeshua said this also. He said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so will I be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. But he wasn't just talking about Jonah. He was saying every time you see someone in the Bible getting thrown into a pit, whether it's, whether it's Joseph, whether it's Jeremiah, whether it's Joshua, whether it's, not Joshua, whether, what did we just say, the first guy? Jonah, whether, here, all these people getting thrown into a pit. He said, that's all talking about my suffering. When Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road of Emmaus, He said that He showed them where He was beginning from the beginning of the Torah all the way through. He's there. And He said in all the writings, He's there. So it's not just the serpent on the pole, it's every pole. It's not just Jonah in the belly of the whale, it's every time one of the servants of God suffered in the time. And then He said another just as. 
He said, just as Moses gave you manna from heaven, he said, that's like me. But he wasn't just saying Moses at that point. He was saying all the figures. He means like Abraham gave his son up. He's saying like Moses went up to the mountain, got revelation from God. He's talking about every man of God, like Mordecai that came out and was almost hung on a wooden pole like a cross. And after that became the, the king of the world. He's talking about every single one of the Old Testament figures as they become a representative of God. That's also an image of Jesus. He gave us three just as's. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole. Just as Jonah was thrown into well. And just as Moses was a prophet. But what he means by that is every time you see a pole, a stick, a wood, that's Jesus. Every time you see a, a hero of God suffering and thrown into a pit, that's Jesus. Every time you see one of the, the fathers of the faith representing God and doing miracles, that's all Jesus. Elijah going lifted up into heaven, that's a picture of Jesus lifting up into heaven. Every time, every single thing that happens in the Bible... That's Him. So it's an amazing thing. You begin to see Him in every place. It's big. He said, I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning to the end. Now, one of the things you also get, this is another introduction to the teaching. I haven't gotten to the teaching yet. But um, another part of the introduction is that there's a special power and revelation when you get when you start to see the connection and associate between the New Testament picture of Jesus and all the Old Testament pictures of the figure of Jehovah coming down and coming and talking to them in the form of a human being. It happens all over the, the Old Testament. And when you make that connection between the Jehovah of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament... Or as we would say in Hebrew, the Yehovah of the Old Testament and the Yeshua of the New Testament. When you begin to see that connection, because He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the same today as He was yesterday, and He'll be the same in the future. When you begin to make the connection, it's the same guy in the past that He is in the Gospels, and the same guy in the future. When you begin to make that connection, there is a click with you, and, and, the, and the revelation of Yeshua starts to line up for you in the same direction, and there will be a release of power into you. You remember when they came, the soldiers came to get Yeshua in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, he said, we're looking for Yeshua. He said, no, he said to them, he said, who are you looking for? There's Yeshua. And he stood up and he said, I am. What did he just do? I am is the name of God. He said that word and he knocked them right off their feet. Hallelujah. One of our prayer warriors said, I can't believe they had the audacity to get back up after that. <laughs> that was a good word, Susan. Thank you. But anyway... That's an amazing thing because you're making that connection. He said, the, he said the name Jehovah. Now, I want to tell you, by the way, if anybody hears into this Yahweh stuff, his, the Old Testament God is not called Yahweh. It's Jehovah. The, the name Yah, by the way, in Hebrew, see, vowels change depending on what part of the word. When the word comes at the end, like Hallelujah, it has Yah. Like Elijah is Eliyahu. It comes at the end. But when you have it at the beginning of the word, it drops out and it makes an is sound. So when you put it at the beginning, it's Yeho. It's not Yah at the beginning. Like Jehoshaphat, for instance, has the name of it. Yehoshua is his name. So if you're into this Yahweh cult stuff, forget that. That's a bunch of academic pride. You need to get out of that. His name is Jehovah, Yehovah, yud Vave. If you're not sure how to pronounce it. But don't get off into some weird thing. That's for anybody who needed it. I don't know. All right. But now, all right, now here's the teaching. I would like to briefly go over this, and that is um, that the... I was going to say... Did I forget something? Oh, we'll come back to it. 
I want to take the life of Yeshua and I want to divide it up into nine time periods. You can write this down. Isn't that nice? It'll be real easy for you to take notes on. We're going to go over this quickly. We could spend a whole semester teaching about it, but I want to give it to you real fast. Nine periods in the life of Yeshua. The first period is before the time of creation. And that we just said it here. He was with God when God created the world. That means I mean, he was there before the time of creation. In John, when Jesus was praying, he said, God, Father, show them the glory that I had with you before the time that the world was created. By the time we even get to Genesis 1, he says, God, God made them. He said, let us make them in our image. Yeshua is already there before the time you get to Genesis 1. Now, that time period goes from eternity past all the way up to Genesis chapter 1. How much time that was? I don't know, infinite. Or you could say it was, doesn't have a time because it was before time was created. It doesn't make any difference, you know, but that's the first period. You need to see that Yeshua was there before God created the universe. He was, he's God. He's eternal. He's with Him. That's important part to see it. That's number one. Number two, Yeshua exists from the time of creation, the Garden of Eden, right up until the time He was born. That's approximately 4,000 years from the time of creation to the time of His incarnation. At that period of time, and that what could also be referred to as the Old Testament period, or the period of the Law and the Prophets, the Tanakh. And he was there during all that time. Now this is a very important thing for you to see that. Not only was Yeshua there, hidden around in the bosom of the Father, it says in John chapter 1, he was there all the time. And he appears all the time and he comes to talk to people. For instance... I've, I've noticed in my studies over 20 times that Yeshua comes in person physically and sits and talks to one of the Old Testament heroes. One of the most famous times you begin with is Genesis chapter 18. When it says God came, Jehovah came to visit Abraham. And it says the two of them were angels and the third guy was a guy that sat there and talked with them for a whole chapter. You know that part when Abraham argues with God and he says, how many are you going to kill? And said, well, who was that? God in the form of a human being. That's Yeshua. He talked to them. Abraham knew him. He talked to him. He, he had lunch with him. Had a cheeseburger with him. For anybody who knows something about kosher laws. But he had a cheeseburger with him. But he had, but he, and he talked with him. And he knew him. And after that you see that he comes on. And you remember with, with Jacob. That he wrestled with him all night. And, and just to make sure that he knew it wasn't a dream. He kicked him in the thigh and he walked up limping. He said, I wonder if this is a dream. He said, oh, guess that wasn't a dream. He physically wrestled with Yeshua all night. If he didn't wrestle with Yeshua all night, then you've got an, then you've got an angel who's called God. He, he said, I saw God face to face. How would you like to get kicked in the rear end by Yeshua? Hallelujah. If you're stubborn, you may need it. Hallelujah. But, but, uh, but he was there. And you'll see that he goes there. And the point is, when you begin to sh- see Yeshua there, I use this method to share the gospel with people in Israel because they believe in the Torah and they don't believe in the New Testament. And I say, well, Jesus was there. Oh, come on. And I begin to show him page after page after page after page. And I say, who is this guy? I said, that's the guy that was born in and that's why we call him the Son of God. But I'm trying to teach you in the opposite direction. When you can see Yeshua in the Old Testament, it's going to change your view on Him. He's not a God that came into being 2,000 years ago. He wasn't just born 2,000. He was there all the time. What does that mean? It means that everything that happened in the Law and the Prophets, including the nation of Israel, is not irrelevant to your faith. Jesus was there in that pillar of fire talking to Moses. Remember, Moses looked at Him and says, 
He says, I know you're in there. I want to see you. And he said, well, you can't see me right now, but I'll just let you see me from behind, you know. But he said, but he saw him and he saw him in the burning bush. Somebody was in that burning bush. You know, that bush was not burning. The bush was not on fire. Jesus was standing there in His glory and Moses saw the glory of God. There wasn't any fire there at all. And He talked to him. Now here, why is that relevant? I'll give you an example. This will shake you up a little bit. Yeshua was there when the the Ten Commandments were given. Hello? Who do you think wrote the Ten Commandments? Whose finger was that there on that mountain? Who was He talking to on that mountain for 40 years? He was talking to Yeshua. And Yeshua wrote the Ten Commandments. Well, if Yeshua wrote the Ten Commandments, how is that irrelevant to your life as a believer? How can you say, well, I'm not under the law, I'm under the grace, if Yeshua wrote that law? Now, of course, you're not under it in terms, you're not, we're, not under, we're not under law, we're not under condemnation, but the moral principles of God are eternal. What do you think, now that you get the same Jesus that wrote, told you not to lie and not to commit adultery, now that you got saved, you can lie and commit adultery? Some evangelists still think that, you know, hallelujah, we need to change that. Getting quiet in here. All right. Well, anyway, let, let's uh, let's give an example of that. And I'll, I'll tell you, there's a place in, in Daniel chapter 10. Yeshua has a conversation with Daniel for three chapters. Daniel chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12 is all him talking to Yeshua face to face. He's talking to them. And you see that all over the Bible. In Ezekiel chapter 8, again, three chapters. Ezekiel talks to Yeshua face to face for three chapters. Joshua talked with Yeshua the night before he fought the battle of Jericho. All these places you see him. And what that means is, watch this, if Yeshua was there, we better read that. Did you know that Yeshua talked to to Joshua before the battle of Jericho? Let's look at that real quick. What I'm trying to say is, if it was Yeshua there when the Ten Commandments were written, it must mean that the Ten Commandments are not irrelevant to you as a faith. If Yeshua was there when Joshua conquered Israel, that means the nation of Israel is not irrelevant to your faith because you believe in Jesus. Did you get that? I don't think you got that. Let's, let's look, first, let's look at the passage. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5 verse 13. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, they lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite with him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but I have come as the commander of the army of the Lord. I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face on earth and worshipped him. That's a shocker for our people. Hallelujah. Who says you can't worship the Messiah? Fell on earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to me? Then the commander of the, of, the Lord of, uh, of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take the sandal off your foot and the place for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. That also just proved to us right there that the same guy that, he, that Joshua talked to was in, on before Jericho was the same guy that Moses talked to with the burning bush. He's there the whole time. Now, what does that mean, though? That if Joshua, if Yeshua was there with Joshua when he went in to conquer the land and he did it under his command, Joshua did it under this guy's command, that means Yeshua was there when they took the land of Israel. That means the land of Israel is not irrelevant to the faith today. It's not something that has, well, that's the Old Testament, it's got nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus was there leading the charge. How can, the law, how can the law be irrelevant to our faith when Jesus wrote the law? How can Israel be irrelevant to our faith when it was Jesus that led them in to conquer the land? How, 
can the exodus from Egypt be irrelevant when it was Jesus that led them out? I've always wanted to do a, a sermon once and take a um, one of those jacks where you unhook the uh, um, wheels in a car. You know what I'm talking about? And bring it up and said, do you know how the, def- uh, the Egyptians were defeated at, when they went out from, 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 uh, from Egypt? When they followed them into the thing? It says because the wheels, somebody went down and took their wheels off. Do you know who did that? Jesus went down there and took the, took the bolts out of the wheels of the, of the chariots there. And he was there. He was there at every time. All I'm trying to say is I want you to realize is that there's nothing in this Bible from Genesis to Revelation that is irrelevant to faith in Jesus. It's all faith in Jesus. Now, if you're a Jew that doesn't believe in Jesus, you need to see Jesus there in the Old Testament. If you're a Christian that doesn't that thinks that Jesus just started 2,000 years ago and you don't see the relevancy of all history and all creation, then you need to see Him back at that point of time also. Nothing here is irrelevant. Not the creation isn't irrelevant. Not the flood of Noah is not irrelevant. It's all there. Everything's got to do with him. And he was there in every place. I'll give you another example. Let's look in Ezekiel chapter 1. This is just the second period. I need to hurry up. Well, or maybe we just won't get to the other part. That's all right. Ezekiel chapter 1. Here's an image of Ezekiel seeing him. You know, he sees this thing, the wheel and the, and the wheels and the fire going up and, and the glory of God. And what does he see there? You see that whole thing? Ezekiel chapter 1 is a hard chapter to read. By the way, do you know that the rabbis say that it's illegal, that you're not allowed to read Ezekiel chapter 1? They say if you read chapter, if they said if you read Ezekiel chapter 1, you'll either go crazy or you'll become a believer in Jesus, so you can't read it. It's amazing. Now, what does he see there? He saw the glory of God. You know what the glory of God is? It's a pillar of fire. Just like Moses saw, just like everyone else saw, it's a pillar of fire, but stronger. He saw the full revelation. If it's got lightning going in and out of it, because it's like combustible nuclear fusion power coming out of that, it's got these huge wheels on the bottom, which are these, the, the, the cherubim, the, the cherubim that you call that, and they're there moving it, and that goes up. On the top of this pillar is a, is a ceiling. It's, a, it's what the Bible calls a firmament. It's like a, from, as we look up from it, it's like, we're, like you might be looking up at the top of that ceiling right there. Do you realize that ceiling right there is the floor of the floor on the top of it? So it, if you can imagine that being glass, that's what he saw. He looked up at something that looked like a ceiling for us, but was the floor of heaven. Now, normally we don't see it. We just read in Colossians 1 that God creates things that are visible and things that are, in, that are invisible. There's a firmament above this earth. We don't see it all the time. It's our ceiling. It's God's floor. So that's what he saw. But he saw it and God let him see it as glass so he could see through that and see what's on the other side. Now, what did he see on the other side? What did he say? A throne. That's right. In Hebrew, it just means chair. He just saw a chair. He saw a chair. What does it say on that chair? Let's look at verse 26. It says, And above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne or a chair. In the appearance of a sapphire stone and the likeness of the throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Well, who is that? There's a man, a divine man. Well, that divine man was there when Ezekiel was there with him in in the wilderness. If you see that, what are you going to do with that? You know, if you're Jew, you're either going to go crazy, say it's forbidden to read this or say, hey, apparently God can come down and visit us in the form of a man. There's no reason for us not to believe in Jesus. Hallelujah. 
But we see him there all that, in all that time period. Right, that's the second period. The third period is more well known to you. Of course, that's the 30 years from when he was born up until the time when he was baptized. Let's look at that in, in the book of Matthew. At this point, he was born in. I'm going to spend the least amount of time on this because this is the one that's is, is the part that's so well known. Uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Now, I want you to realize that every, all this time up until this point, Yeshua is growing up. Even Yeshua himself went through the natural process of growing up as a little boy into an adult. And, and so we need to not be afraid of God's processes in our lives. When you become a believer, you go through a process of, of faith, of growing up in faith. The process of growing up physically as a child, the process of growing up psychologically in your soul, and the process of growing up spiritually is part of God's process. Even Jesus went through it, so that doesn't mean that you don't have to go through it. A lot of people get born again, their spirits are strong, but they've been injured in their souls. You need to get healed in your soul so that you can go on and continue to walk with God. The fact that you got born again your spirit doesn't automatically mean that that human developmental, psychological development that you needed that got hurt in your life, you need to go back and get that healed. Jesus went through a process first of growing up physically, then growing up psychologically, soulishly, and then He received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew three, thirteen. Then Yeshua came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? But Yeshua answered and said to him, Permit it be so now, for thus it is fitting for all righteousness to be fulfilled. And when we had been baptized, Yeshua came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting from him. And a voice suddenly came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now that period of time was from the time he was born to approximately the time he was 30. I think he was probably a little bit over 30, maybe 31, 32, 33. But it was around that time. And at that point, he received the Holy Spirit and he started doing his ministry at that time. That's the next period of time. What number are we on now? Number four. The fourth period is three years of time in which he went around preaching the gospel, doing miracles, healing the sick, and raising up disciples. That was his ministry period of time. It, approximately three years, again, may have been a little bit more. But he, but he was ministering there in Israel. Now, there are some stories that say he did miracles before that time. I believe that's wrong. It's not biblical. All his miracles started after the time he received the Holy Spirit. Which means any of the miracles that Yeshua did, he did not do it as the Son of God. He did it as a baptized human being who received the wholeness, fullness of the Holy Spirit. That means any of the miracles he did, we can do also. Because we can stand in the same light. We're human beings. That's why he got baptized. He didn't need to get baptized for himself. He got baptized for us to say this is the way you get the Holy Spirit. He could have gotten the Holy Spirit as being the perfect Son of God. But he decided not to get it that way. He could have. He decided to get the Holy Spirit by being a baptized human being. Not because he needed it. Because we needed it. So now we know we can get the Holy Spirit by being a baptized human being. We can get the Holy Spirit and we can do miracles in that way. So that's the next period of time is three years. Now, um, let's go up now to Acts chapter 2. The fourth period of time, the fifth. Oh, we've got to keep track on me there. So I don't have any, I don't have notes. Okay, fifth period of time 
is comes from the time that Yeshua was crucified until the time he was raised from the dead. How much time did that take? Three years. Uh, three? Three days. Right. The first period of time is infinite. The second period of time is 4,000 years. Third period of time is 30 years. The fourth period of time is three years. And the fifth period of time is just three days. It's from the time where we see him on the cross, he disappears, and then he is raised from the dead three days later. Now, during that period of time, uh, it tells us in Acts chapter 2 that he descended into hell. Let's look at that in Acts chapter 2. We'll read verse 24. Acts chapter 2, 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pain of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Then he quotes Psalm 16. We'll go up and look at his interpretation of that. Verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul would not be left in hell, nor would his flesh see destruction. In other words, it says here that when Jesus was buried, his body, when he was crucified, they took his body off the, to- off the cross, they placed his body into a tomb, his soul then descended down into hell for three days, and then he was lifted back up on this. This is repeated many times in the Old Testament. You find it five times in the New Testament. We don't have time to look that up right now. I'll just give you the citations in case you want to look it up. Acts chapter 2, it says they would not leave his soul in hell. Romans chapter 10. I'm sorry. Start with this. Matthew chapter 12 says, As Jonah went to the belly of the whale, well, the Son of Man would went to the belly of the earth. That's the first citation. The second one, Acts chapter 2, that he w- is that David foresaw that his soul would not be left in hell for more than three days. The third citation is Romans 10, where it said we should not pray to lift Christ up because he descended first to the bowels of the earth. The next one is in, Roman, is in Ephesians chapter 4, when it says that the Messiah ascended, descended down into the abyss and then was lifted up. And the last one is in 1 Peter 3, where it said that between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus went and preached the gospel to the spirits that were in hell. That's five New Testament. Testament references to the fact that Yeshua descended to hell during that time. But that's not what my teaching is about today. I just want to show you that that's next period. All right, let's go on. There's a next period after that. Period number six was after the time that he was raised from the dead until his full ascension into heaven. That was a period of time. Does anybody anybody know how long that was? Forty days, that's right. And where does it say that? Ooh, ooh, Acts, right? Where, where? Acts chapter 1. Good. All right. Acts chapter 1. Let's turn back a page. Acts chapter 1 says this. Right at the beginning. Verse 2. Up until the day that he was taken up, after he threw the Holy Spirit and bidden commandments, the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Then he tells them about getting baptized in the Spirit and they say, verse 6, Therefore, when they come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, would this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what happened is, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the three days after Passover, are you all with me here? Am I going too fast? I know I'm going fast, but you're hanging in there? All right. So then, before he ascended into heaven, when they all watched him go up like, like, 
Elisha watched Elijah go up. They all saw him up. That was 40 days later. He spent 40 days and nights with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Now, this period of time is very important to us. Why? Because it gives us an example. Pay attention here. Don't miss this. It gives us an example of a resurrected human being living on planet Earth. You see, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead and went right into heaven. Why? Because it's possible for a human being after the resurrection to live on planet Earth. And you know what would happen? His disciples would be eating. He would come in. He would sit down. He would eat with them. And he said, listen, I'm resurrected, but I'm not a ghost. Hello, when you get resurrected, you're not going to be a ghost. Why are you not going to be a ghost? Because your eternal dwelling place is not in heaven. It's on Earth. He had a physical body. And he said, just to prove that, give me something to eat. And he sat there and ate them. He says, I'm eating with you to show that in the world to come, you're going to be able to do everything you do on this earth plus more. God's not going to take away in the world to come. He's going to add to it. I don't know if that means we get to play, you know, basketball or whatever, but, but you'll be able to, you know, the things that, the things of this world, He adds to it. You're never going to become a floating ghost unless you die before the time Jesus comes back and you wait in heaven, but you're waiting to get your body back. Your eternal dwelling place is not in heaven. You're waiting there until the resurrection where you will come back down and get a physical body because God meant for us to live on this earth. So anyway, you get an example of how that's possible. What will it be like? You've got 40 days of Jesus doing that. He would sit with His disciples. He would have something to eat. He would say, thank you very much. He would get up and walk through the wall. So what am I saying by that? You can do everything you can do in this lifetime, like eat, but you can do more, like walking through walls. We won't be, we'll have extra ability. So that gives us 40 days in which He showed them what it would be like to be here on this earth before He resurrected. Now, there was another reason He did that, of course, was to give them infallible proof of the resurrection. You need to understand this. I don't know if you're challenged, but we're challenged with this in Israel. You know, we say, well, we believe in Jesus. They say, well, where is He? No, no, we say, well, no, we say, we believe in Jesus and they believe in these other rabbis. And I preach to them, I say, well, the difference is that our Messiah was raised from the dead and your Messiah wasn't. So he said, well, if your Messiah was raised from the dead, where is he? You know. So I said, well, he rose into heaven. They said, I wouldn't believe that. I said, do you believe the Old Testament? Sure. What about Elijah? And he said, ooh, good point. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is, we don't just believe in the resurrection. We believe in all the people that saw him and touched him after he was raised from the dead. We don't believe in the resurrection like that. We believe the fact that there was hundreds and thousands of people who saw him and talked to him and touched him and ate with him. And they all bore witness of the resurrection. We, we believe in something that is a historical fact with witnesses who documented their testimonies and we have it written down. That's what we believe in, not in some faith in the theology of the resurrection. That's very important. That's why he did that. But it's also interesting that there was a third reason he was there. One was to show them what it was like to be live on earth in a resurrected body. Secondly, it was to prove the fact he was resurrected. And thirdly, he was there to what? Teach them about the kingdom of God. Now, he taught them about the kingdom of God for 40 days and 40 nights. And the only thing his disciples had to say when he finished that teaching was, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? What does that show? It had to show that a lot of what he taught about in those 40 days had Israel in the center of it, and Israel is therefore again not irrelevant. The kingdom of God eventually will be a kingdom on this earth with peace among all the nations. 
including Israel. I got my brother here, Wahid, from Egypt, including Israel and Egypt and Jordan and, and Lebanon. We're all going to be at peace together. And Jesus is going to come back and, and rule and reign from Jerusalem. It will be here. Hallelujah. Now, so that period of time went 40 days. The next period of time, of course, is when he was lifted up into heaven. What period are we on now? Six. Seven? Seven. Okay, the next period of time is the present time we're living in. Up until this time, from the time of the ascension to this present time, it's about 2,000 years. A little under 2,000 years, he's still there. The point to understand about that is that we do not believe that Jesus is still on the cross. He's finished the cross. We don't believe he's in hell right now. We don't believe he's resurrected walking around the earth. He has not, he's, he's alive right now and he's doing something. This is what we refer to in some circles as the present ministry of Jesus. Jesus did not go, Jesus did not retire. He's not getting a pension now. He's not, didn't go on vacation for 2,000 years. He's still ministering. He's got a present tense ministry. And what is that ministry right now? Huh? One thing is intercession at the right hand of God, but it's also something else. We see that in Acts chapter 2. It says this. This is not my Bible here, so. Hallelujah. Here it is. Verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. The present tense ministry of Yeshua is pouring out the Holy Spirit on people and, and, and encouraging them to have signs and wonders, prophecies, including speaking in tongues. Hard to say this, but Jesus is a charismatic. So we understand that we, don't, we have to teach not just what He did 2,000 years ago, but what He's doing now. He's not dying on the cross right now. He's not being raised from the dead right now. What He's doing right now, He's, he's pouring out the Holy Spirit and giving to people within the church the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Amen. But you probably wouldn't be at this conference if you didn't believe that. So let's go on to the next one. So that was the next stage. The next one, of course, is when he's going to come back. All right. That is in the period that we call the millennium. We see that, of course, in Revelation 19 is a good place to see that. One picture of him coming back. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon him was called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and makes war. Now, we need to realize that when Yeshua comes back, He's coming back to make war. He came in the first century and He gave people an opportunity to receive forgiveness of sins. Those who refuse to do that, He's coming back to punish sins. All right? First, He gives the pardon of sin and then He comes back for the punishment of sins. He will do that. But He will come back to this earth and He will stay here and live and rule and reign upon this earth for a thousand years. Now, during that thousand years, some of the believers will be resurrected, not all. The Bible says that here in Revelation 20 that those who were martyred for Him, I'm hoping that it's more than martyred, but not only, not only that. The Bible says there are two resurrections, one at the beginning of the resurrection and one at the end of the resurrection. And we as believers want to make it our goal to make it to the first resurrection. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to get resurrected. I'm not talking about your salvation. But you may not be in the first resurrection. The first resurrection is for those who have given their lives unto Yeshua all the way unto the death and served Him with all their heart. 
frankly, I think the vast majority of believers in Yeshua are not going to make it till the second, res- second resurrection. And that should be our hope. The fact that you're going to get resurrected doesn't say which one you're going to be in. How do we know that? Because the second one also, the second resurrection, says that the book of life was also open. Not everybody in the second resurrection goes to hell. Now, I don't know who's there and who's not. That's not for me to tell. All I'm saying is, because I don't know. Not for me to judge. I have no idea. But all I'm saying is, is that there is a better resurrection and there's a less better resurrection. Let's go for the best resurrection. Hallelujah. And what we do in this life determines what kind of resurrection. It will determine which resurrection we're in and what kind of resurrection when we get when we get it. So let's go for it all the way. Why I'm saying that, folks, the game's not over when you receive Jesus as Lord. That's the time for you to start serving Him and building on, on what kind of resurrection you're going to be in. That was for a thousand years. It says that Jesus will rule and reign upon this earth with some of the saints who have been resurrected with Him as His ruling body who will be, uh, live on this planet. That's for a thousand years. And that's not the end. That's the eighth period, right? Then there's, a fa- then there's the last period, the ninth period that comes after. Let's look in 1 Corinthians 15. All right. 1 Corinthians 15. Speaking of the resurrection. It says here that there is an order to the resurrection of when we will be resurrected. Let's read it there. In verse um, 23, referring to the resurrection, he says, But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, he was raised already from the dead 2,000 years ago. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming, those who get the first resurrection, then, after a thousand years, comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father and he puts an end to all rule and authority and all power, for he must reign on this earth until he puts all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. When he's put all things under his feet, but when he says all things that are put under him, it's evident that, that he who put all things under him is accepted, is not included in that rule. And then when all things are made subject to him, God the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected unto him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. There is another period of time after the millennium, which is the new heavens and the, earth, the new earth, that that goes on for eternity into the future. When that happens, at the end of the millennium, then heaven descends and heaven and earth are joined back together again. And there is eternal harmony between heaven and earth. That's why the eternal dwelling place of, of the saints is not in heaven. It's not really on earth either. It's in a, it's in a joined heaven and earth. It's, it's, the, it's the Garden of Eden restored and we will live there together. At that time, those people that were in heaven waiting will come back down and they will get their resurrection body. You will either, some will get it at the, at the beginning of the millennium, some will get it at the end of the millennium, but in either case, then we go on out into eternity. And that eternity, up and right now, there's a separation between heaven and earth, but in the ultimate eternity, heaven and earth will be joined together. We'll get all of the benefits of heaven and all of the benefits of earth. You get to have your cake and eat it too. Hallelujah. It all works out fine in the end. Jesus is going to put that all together. All right. Now, 
Why did I say, why did I, why did I tell you all that? First of all, to help you see, see Yeshua. But there's, I want to now build on that foundation to explain a few things to you. We were talking about last night of seeing Yeshua in the vertical realm. To seeing Him both as the Son of God in heaven and the Son of David on the earth. You need to see Him all the way up as the Son of God. You need to see Him all the way in heavenly Jerusalem. You need to see Him all the way back down in earthly Jerusalem. You need to see Him as the Son of God totally in His full divinity. You need to see Him as the Son of David in His full humanity. He's totally divine and totally human. You need to see the upward and downward. And until you see the heavenly Jerusalem on top of the earthly Jerusalem, there will be a disjointing there. You want to understand how that connects How that connects. But they're the same and it goes together. That's the vertical level. Now, I believe that even in a physical way, just as Ezekiel saw that when he was in the wilderness, he saw that second floor up above them. I believe that, that God's dwelling place is actually up above Jerusalem. That there is a firmament there and that and there, the heavenly Jerusalem is directly above earthly Jerusalem. And if you could see it with eyes of the Spirit, you would see a firmament above there and heaven's up above that. We're separated from it now, but we'll be joined back together at the end of it. And that's why... When uh, Solomon built the temple, he said to people that are out anywhere in the world, they should turn to this place to pray. Because that place in Jerusalem is under the place where God is. And, 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 and well, let's, let's look at that for a second. Let me read this. I've got to do this in my Bible. <laughs> Maybe a little hard, but let's do it this way. Turn with me for a moment to uh, Second, Second Chronicles. So I believe that one is on top of the other. Now, if it's not physically there, that's the spiritual point is the same anyway, so don't, don't get picky with me, all right? But here's the point. Let's look at Second Chronicles chapter 2. I'm sorry. Second Chronicles. And let's look in chapter 6, when he just finished building the temple. Let's look, for example, in chapter 6. He tells the people all over the world that people can turn to the temple and they can pray there and receive that. And let's look in verse 20. It says, May your eyes be open unto this temple, this house that I built, day and night, and to this place where you have said to put your name there. In other words, there's a place, and through all this chapter, several times he says, this place, this place, this place where you have placed your name on earth. And then he says, why? Because, look in verse 30, for you will hear from heaven the place of your dwelling. In other words, he's picturing here, he's saying, I've built this thing on this on the ground at the place where you told me to and we'll have people turn here to pray so that you, when you're sitting in heaven on your place, you will look at them praying there and you will answer their prayers. The image here, and whether it's actually that way or it's biblical symbolism, for me this point is still the same, that the people and the nations are to turn toward Jerusalem and the picture was that house there that God was supposed to be living above it and they would turn to that place symbolically to pray and, and but looking up to God above it and He would answer their prayers. So we have a, a there is a vertical, heavenly of what Ezekiel saw above the firmament and what we have on this earth that eventually will be joined together. Everything on this earth is a copy of what's in heaven. And he wants to join that back together for us. 
Now, so that is the vertical thing. If we want to understand Jesus, we have to understand Him both in the vertical. We have to see Him all the way up in the heavenly dimension and all the way down in the earthly dimension. And you've got to see the two together so you won't disassociate the two. So as I say, Jews today have no problem seeing the Messiah as the Son of David. They can't even imagine Him being the Son of God. But most Christians understand Him as the Son of God and they know that He's the Son of David, but it makes no sense to them. There's no place for that. It's only when you get those two lined up that the heavenly part and the earthly part makes sense to you and then you can see Jesus joining heaven and earth together. If you don't get that click between the Son of God and the Son of David, you can't see the purpose of Jesus to join the two together. But that's not our message today. Now, what I want to talk about today is the other way. What I've just showed you today now is not the vertical, but the horizontal. The horizontal, I mean in a, in a time way. Jesus was here from the beginning. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He said, I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I was here. I am here. I always will be here. That's the meaning of the name. I am Jehovah Yehoshua, that's his real name, I meaning Jehovah saves. You need to see him all the way through. Now, why is that important? Because sometimes to see where you're going in the future, you need to know where you've been. You can't, if you just take a picture of where somebody is on a road, you don't know where he's going. But if you can see it through time where he came up to get to this point, you can understand where the road is that he's going to. I believe, and we were catching this in prayer today, that there is a prophetic crisis going on. There's a crisis for the prophetic community. I was asking God, why, why have, what have you done? Why have you brought me here to this conference? This, this, uh, I believe that the, that the International House of Prayer is not just a prayer network, it's a prophetic network. And I believe there's a crisis in the prophetic community. The prophets know they've been point, called by God to point the direction for the church of where they're going. And the prophets don't know. And they're frustrated. And they're confused. And I say this with love. But you can't know where you're going to go in the future if you don't know where you've been in the past. I got a vision of this in a picture, not a vision, a picture in prayer. Of, of, of somebody taking an arrow, a bow and arrow, and pulling back on the arrow. You can't know where the arrow is going to shoot forward if you can't pull it back to where it was. It's the pulling it back from where it was that gives you the sense of direction of where you're going to shoot it in the future. You guys with me here? Now, if we just see Jesus in the present tense, if we just see Him on the Gospels, you have no idea of where you're going. But when you pull that, that bow backwards and you see Him as the Jehovah figure in the Old Testament and you see Him there writing, you see Him there, you see him there bombing Sodom and Gomorrah with brimstone, you see Him writing the Ten Commandments, you see Him leading Joshua into the Promised Land, you see Him sending Israel out into exile, you see Him on every page there, it allows you to pull that bow back and gives you a sense of direction as to where you're going. If we don't have that, the prophets don't know where to prophesy. Where are we going to? But if you can pull the bow backward and you can see him all the way, pull it all the way back to the book of Genesis and see it straight line through it, then you'll see it'll be so obvious where that bow is shooting and where that arrow is shooting in the future. You all with me? 
See, if you don't see a straight... I'm trying to draw a straight line for you. That's what I was trying to do today, this morning on that little teaching. Like a clothesline, like a straight line to see Jesus' life as a straight line through the whole plan of God. And when you see that, you begin to understand His life as a straight line. When you pull it backwards, understanding where He was, you'll see it forward going to where He will be. And it allows us to, to shoot off and, and, and it will allow the prophets to point where they're supposed to go. But until you can see it going backwards with the bow, you won't see where it's going forward. That's why I believe that we're, we're here to, to provide a, a little service to, to the cutting edge prophets today to help them to see how to pull the bow backwards to an elk to help them point the way for the church in the future. They've got to be able to see this coming back. I'm trying to be a, a, a servant here to the pr- prophetic community that's represented here and the prophetic network to say, can, can I help you to see, uh, as, uh, because I'm a Jewish believer, can I help you see a little bit of the past so that you can aim your bow better and point the church in the direction for the future where it's going? I'll give you another example then. I had another picture of just seeing this of like a, the church being like a ship on the water. And seeing it like the ship being on a storm. And there's these clouds. And you know, when a ship gets on an ocean, if it gets turned around the clouds, it has no idea. You have no idea which way to go. You, you couldn't even begin to guess. You're just lost. You know? And what you have to do, you have to wait for the clouds to go down so that you can see the stars. And then when you can see the stars, then you can figure out which way you're going. Are you with me? Now, when, and when I realized this, so I said, well, Lord, what about the stars? And the Lord showed me that each Sailor is new in his generation, but the stars are the same stars. You see, they're the same stars that were there yesterday, today, and forever. And when you see Jesus in the past, if you see him this vertical line, if you can understand where he was in the past and where he'll be in the future, it's like you're seeing the stars. Then the cloud will go down and the prophets on the boat can begin to navigate again. They can say, wait a minute, there he was back then, there he is there, and there's where he's going to be, and they'll begin to get your bearings. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, Jesus is the North Star. There's no way to get our bearings but from him. But because we don't see him in the past and we don't see him in the future, we've lost our bearings. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't see it. Well, where was he back then? How was that relevant? How is that relevant? What's he got to do in the future? What's this battle over Jerusalem got to do? What is all this thing? And so what we're trying to say is the, the things of eternal past are related to the things of eternal future to be able to give the prophets their bearing again on what is Jesus doing. So right now, it's like the prophets are on a boat that's been spun around. And they say, well, we're here to give you direction. And, and you know, and <laughs> we're not really sure where to point. But when you get the bearings of the stars, the big thing, where was Jesus in the past? Where is He over us now? And where is He going to be in the future? You can get your bearings and then you can start to prophesy. Now, your bearings won't give you the prophecy. See, I'm not prophesying. That teaching, I wasn't prophesying. Prophesying a little bit now. But I wasn't prophesying. All I was doing was giving you the bearings. You understand what I'm saying? Where He was in the past, where He's in the present, where He's going to be in the future. But if you can see that, you see Him in this vertical line from past to present and future, that'll give you your bearings. And then, in, an, in, a, in, a, in a given church situation, you've got your bearings and God can speak to you and you know where to point. If you don't have those bearings, you, you won't even begin to know where to... What, you won't have the foundation, the framework from which to prophesy to. Are you all with me here? I'm talking to prophets, right? I mean, this is a prophetic community. All right. <clears throat> Here's another thing about this. 
In the Bible, there's a double role of prophets. This is neat. You're going to like this. In the New Testament, you have a prophets as part of the fivefold ministry team. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, right? In the Old Testament, you don't have apostles. You don't have pastors. You don't have evangelists. You don't have teachers. Those are all part of the, the, the New Covenant. When you look in the, pad, in, the, in the Old Covenant in Israel, you have a king, but you also have a prophet. And you, but you have other things. You have the military leader. You have the treasury of the government. You have the priest. You have all those things. In the, so in the Old Covenant, you have king with prophet, priest, treasure, and military leader. In the New Covenant, you've got apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. So in other words, the only role that you have both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the prophet. The prophet's the only one that's got a double role. Are you with me? Now let's, not, let's change it for a moment from Old Covenant to New Covenant. I want you to see it in a different way. There's an, an Israel role of the prophet and there's a church role of the prophet. Which relates to Jesus. Jesus is the king of Israel and he's the head of the church. Jesus as the head of the church as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Jesus is the king of Israel. He has kings. He has warriors. He has prophets. He has priests. And he has treasurers. It's the same Jesus. He's got two different roles. One is the king of Israel and one is as the apostle. You with me? You got this deal? Now Satan, watch this. Now, now, so the prophet is the only one that's in both. So, the prophet has to be able to transition and to be able to see both. He's supposed to be the eye. He's supposed to be able to help. He's supposed to see Israel look forward to the outpouring of the Spirit and the coming of the Messiah. But he's also supposed to be for the church to be able to see, help the church see the restoration of the, of the nation of Israel and the restoration of the kingdom of God. There's a two-way direction where that's got to go because the prophet is the only role that's got two ways to it. Now, what's happening now, you know, for 2,000 years this has been irrelevant. Because you've only had a church. Israel hasn't been there. So the only kind of prophet you've had is a church prophet. A five-fold of Ephesians 4 team. A, a prophet that's in an apostolic ministry team under Jesus as the head of the church. You have not had a prophet under the king of Israel, under Jesus, and in the nation of Israel, under the king of Israel. You with me? That's because Israel hasn't been... But, but Israel is now a nation again and God is beginning to restore. The times of the Gentiles are coming to an end and God is re- beginning to restore this different kind of prophet. He's beginning to try to restore a prophetic ministry that is going to restore the kingship. All of prophecy until now was to restore Jesus as the head of the church. But now there's the other kind of prophecy now to restore Jesus as the king of Israel and the king of the nations. We had prophecy connected to Him as the head, as the great apostle, but now we have prophets to come to Him as the great king. Now this kind of prophecy has not been here for 2,000 years. But God is restoring it now. He's getting a double vision here. That's why God gave us two eyes. Eyes Eyes are symbolic. God put that in the body to give us an image of prophetic ministry. And so now what's happening is the prophets have to be able to see with both eyes. If the prophets don't see this other part, they're going to be missing the greatest prophetic event that's happened since the time of the resurrection of Jesus and the establishment of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The fact that God scattered the nation of Israel for 2,000 years and then brought them back in the land is prophesied in every page of the Bible. 
And, and if the prophets can't see that, they're only going to be prophesying with one eye. So what I'm saying is now, God wants to restore this other part to the prophetic world. I was asking God, why, why did you bring me to this conference? What is this for? And I believe it's because, because, because of Mike Bickle and his, and his contact with all of the, the, the cutting-edge prophets in the world today who are the great men in God who are here to point the way of God. God wants to give them another eye. He's saying, I'm not going to let you see with just one eye right now. I'm not going to let you just be a prophet unto the church, not just a prophet unto Jesus as the head of the church. I want you to begin to prophesy to nations. I want you to begin to prophesy about governments. I want you to begin to prophesy about the kingdom of God coming upon this earth. I want you to begin to prophesy not under Jesus as the head of the church, but prophesy under Jesus as the king of Israel, as the king of kings, as the head of every nation, of he who is coming back to take dominion over this earth. I want to see those kind of prophets come into this world as well. Hallelujah. There's a double anointing. There's a double kind of prophecy. Now, this does not affect pastors, teachers, and evangelists and apostles. Because they're not under Jesus as the king. They're under Jesus as the head of the church. See what I'm saying? They hear this, well, okay, great. You know, so what? I'm still preaching the gospel. You know, I'm still teaching the Bible. I'm still pastoring the flock. You know, Asher, I've got people in my flock and they're hurting. I'm pastoring through. I'm trying to help their marriages. Your message has nothing to do with me, right? You know? They said, well, you know, I'm an evangelist. I'm preaching the gospel. Doesn't have much to do with it. You're right. Preach Jesus the Messiah. Get born again saved. I'm not changing that a bit. But for the prophets, that's the only one that loops into this other dimension. The prophets are going to have to make the transition to cross this bridge, to get over, to see this, to be able to prophesy as a prophet under Jesus as the king and not just under Jesus as the apostle. Now, I believe that if apostles get disconnected from apostolic oversight, they are liable to make an error. Right? Because they're supposed to be connected to it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm using that as an example. If they're disconnected from him as the king, completely, how can they possibly prophesy what God wants to prophesy today? So I'm saying is within the church world, they need to be connected to Jesus, the head of the church, in an apostolic network. But I'm saying now I'm talking about a whole new paradigm here. I'm talking about a whole other thing that's not existed here. We are going out of the box. Are you with me here? I'm talking about, I'm not talking about changing something in the box. I'm talking about a different box completely. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just trying to make sure you understand what I'm saying here. So I'm saying there's a, di- the prophet has to be able now to cross the bridge over the nose here. Oh, well, the Jewish nose, I guess. They're going to have to cross the bridge. Oh, that was prophetic. I don't know. Might have been a little pathetic, but anyway. Now, they're going to have to cross that bridge to see Jesus as the king, to be able to be a king's prophet and not just the apostle's prophet. Are you with me? Because what's happening now is the prophets are trying to keep prophesying under the same paradigm. And it's the same church kind of prophecies. And everybody's yawning. Hello. And everybody's going, hey, you got something new for us here? And they're rejuggling the things in the same box. And they're saying, somebody give us a new word here. We don't, there's no direction here. But we've got to come over and see and begin to see Jesus and say, I'm not just representing Jesus. I'm not just a prophet under Jesus as the head of the church. I mean, we've got that thing developed now. Uh, Jim Gall was telling me that since the outpouring of 
in the second in Pentecost from 1904, we've got a hundred years of prophetic ministry. Man, we got that thing out. But now we've got the restoration of Israel. We've got to have a prophets coming under speaking of Jesus as the King. You see, a prophet is coming to give a word, and you come to give a prophet under the Ephesians 4 team. He speaks from Jesus. He's representing Jesus as the head of the church. But now we need another kind of prophet, the second eye, the second half, to begin to prophesy and represent Jesus as the King of Israel, the King of every nation of the world, the owner of this planet, the one that's coming back. Now, why has this not been important for 2,000 years? Because when Jesus was crucified, the, 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 the gospel was going out to the nations. Jesus wasn't getting ready. See, that's what, that's what those guys in the first century, that's what they said in Acts chapter 1. Are you going to do it now? Are you coming as king? Are you going to restore Israel? Are you going to defeat the enemies? Are you going to bring your kingdom to this world? And he said, no, 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 no. We've got a different kind of prophecy now. You can take 2,000 years and you preach the church. You bring the gospel. You prophesy the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But he said, the day will come. He didn't say it wouldn't happen. He said, you just don't know when. But I'll tell you when. It's now. Now we have to come back. And Jesus is getting... Why? Because He wasn't getting ready to come back then. He was in a different way. He was sending people out. So there was no reason to emphasize this. But now He's beginning to regather. He's regathering the church. He's regathering Israel. He's getting His forces ready to come back and take over this planet. And now He wants to restore a different kind of prophecy. A prophet not representing... The, the Jesus as the head apostle, as head of the church, but uh, prophets have begun to represent Him as the King of Kings, as the, the, the dominion taker upon this earth. That's a different kind of prophetic word. It's, a, it's not just a different word. It's a different ministry altogether. And I believe that the prophets here are going to cross that bridge. Now I had a word. I'm going to put this on tape. This, here's a word for Jim Gall. The word for Jim Gone for other prophets. I'm going to have to describe that. I'm going to swing my microphone around. You can watch this here. See what I'm doing? Now, what I did was put the microphone at the end of the cord and held onto the cord and swung it around in a circle. Now, in order to do that, you have to have two kinds of powers. Now, I know nothing about physics, and I'm probably completely wrong, but as I understand it, you have, you have centripetal force and centrifugal force. As I understand it, centrifugal, fugue means to flight. That's the force of this thing trying to get out. You see this top of the microphone is trying to get away from me. Watch. You see if I let go of that thing for a minute, it would just shoot across the room. There's a power to try to get it out away from me. But there's a second power, centripetal, which means like holding it down on your foot, holding it back in. That's my hand. Watch this. You see that my hand is holding on to that thing? I'm holding, there's two powers. There's power one to try to shoot this out away from me, and there's power me holding to bring it back. You with me? In that same way, there's two types of prophetic words. In the first century, Jesus was trying to spread the gospel out. He's, it was a centrifugal prophecy. He's saying, get out, go, ends of the earth, get out of here, exile. And we didn't get it. We said, you know, we Jews, we love Israel so much, we're just not leaving for nothing. So he had to burn the place down on the ground to get us out of there. You know, he said, leave, leave, get out of here. This is the church age. I'm getting you out of here. So, and, and the prophecies, you with me? The prophecies were... Tr- for, were Primarily centrifugal prophecies. It's shooting outward. 
You know, but now Jesus is getting ready to come back. He's getting ready to unite all things in heaven and earth under Him. It's a centripetal uh, prophecy. It's getting ready to see Him as King. Not a, not a church gospel to the end of the world, but a King. Him coming back, solidifying things under His rule, bringing things under submission to Him as King, bringing the government, bringing the economy, bringing the agriculture, bringing the nations of this world. It's a centripetal kind of force of prophecy. So there's two kinds of forces. There's a sin, the, 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 uh, the apostolic prophet is a centrifugal force of prophecy. The, the kingly prophet is a centripetal force of prophecy. I probably didn't say that right, but I hope you got the point, okay? So now, God is bringing that in. So there is a, a double, a, a, a two different kind of prophes, prophecies. Two, two offices of prophets, that's what I'm trying to say. Now, if there's two offices of prophet, I would dare say there that there is a double anointing. Hallelujah. Everybody's trying to get a double anointing. You can't get a double anointing if you're still in the same box. You got one anointing in one box and another anointing in the other box. If you want to get a double anointing, you got to get them from both boxes. This is the way to get the double anointing. Not to keep your same anointing and say, I'm anointed, I'm anointed, I'm anointed. That's not going to work. You got to get the other anointing from the other box. Two bottles. Hallelujah. The vine and the fig tree. You've got two different things coming out here. You've got to be able to get them both if you want a double anointing. You've got to be able to see Jesus not just as the head of the church. You've also got to be able to see Him as the King of Israel and the King of all the nations. So we want to get a double prophecy. Now, um, here was my word for Mike. I guess I'll have to get the tape. Um, I'm, I'm just... How is this going to get to these prophets? And I realize... That perhaps more than anybody else in the world, God has put Mike Bickle in a way where he has contact with all the cutting-edge prophets around the world. And, and Mike, if you hear this, <laughs> I'm just going to prophesy this over. I believe that God has made you to be a pastor unto prophets. And to be able to help pastor them out of this one field of pasture into this other field of pasture. To help them see the second anointing as well. To get them out. Because the prophets are not going to be able to hear it from me. I'm shouting from the other side. They've got to have someone that knows that's their kind of pastor that can shepherd them into that and able to hear that on the other way. And I believe that God, for, for 20 years, God has given Mike a calling, an anointing, an appointment, and an office to be able to shepherd, shepherd, past, uh, uh, shepherd prophets. I don't believe he's a pastor of pastors. I don't believe he's a pastor of sheep. I believe he's a pastor of prophets. I mean, I've only been here twice, but man, if you're a regular sheep, he's going to burn you right out of your socks before you get here. But hallelujah, he knows how to pastor prophets. Glory to God. The people that want to run that fast, he's there. He's the kind of guy God's given him an anointing. I believe that. Mike, if you're willing to see that, that's what I see anyway. If God's given you an ability to shepherd prophets that almost no one else can and to help shepherd them. And that's why God, I believe, has, has brought us here to deliver this message into your hand and say, we can't get it to them. They won't hear it from us. They need somebody to shepherd them in to be able to hear this, this, other, this second type of prophecy, this other kind of prophetic office. That here, Mike, I just believe God is going to use you to shepherd the cutting-edge prophets in the world, in the charismatic church today, to shepherd them in to not just being prophets of Jesus as the head of the church, but also to being prophets of Jesus as the King. Hallelujah. And help pastor them into that. Glory to God. Well, one other thing I'm just about done here. Are we past time? i got two more minutes here. 
Doesn't matter. Hell, we get you trapped in the room. Lock the door there, quick. All right. <laughs> anyway, um, two more things I wanted to say real quick. One of them was that as, as we finished praying last night about that thing about the meteor coming, I, I, I had a, I had a, a, I saw something in my heart last night. I didn't understand it, so I didn't say it. When I saw that message and Jesus coming like a king, like a meteor, what I saw was it coming to the earth and I saw this huge building. And when it hit this building, the building just collapsed. And I said, what was it? I didn't understand. It was like the whole structure went down. And I realized today in prayer, the Lord showed me that, that He's talking about that's a paradigm shift. Again, that this is not just to stay in the box. It's talking about making a different box. That this message is not... You can't just be a prophet unto Jesus at the head of the church and just adjust this a little bit. You've got to have a totally paradigm shift. You can't see this with this eye and just look a little harder from that eye. It's a different eye. This message is blowing that box apart completely and doing a different box. Now, I don't mean that that other message is going to be gone. That kind of prophecy will still be there. But it meant to say this message will not of Jesus being the king and being a prophet of Jesus as the king will not fit in the other box. It won't fit in that wineskin. It's a different wineskin. It's a different box. It's a different paradigm. It's just that you have Jesus the head of the church and you've got Him as King of Israel. It's a different paradigm. Ultimately, they will be one together. Just as two eyes ultimately see together. But there are two different eyes here. It will not fit. And that message will blow that to pieces and the prophets are going to see, will I get this other paradigm or not? Hallelujah. The last thing I want to say was, I'm just trying to get this all on tape. So, um, oh, one other thing that I wanted to say, which and I'm going to speak now to, our, to the movement of Messianic Jews in the world. Um, one of the reasons that we're here is because our team came to visit Kansas City, maybe was it, was it 15 years ago. And the reason why we came here, if any Messianic Jews get this tape, listen, we did not come here to convince the Metro Vineyard about the validity of Messianic Judaism. We were over in the Washington, Maryland area and we heard that there were modern day prophets in Kansas City. And Dan said to us, let's go. Let's go. Now, this is actually a double word. I have a word that's for Dan. And Dan, if you can get this tape, I want to tell you that something. God has made Dan to be like a Moses. He has laid the the law foundations, the theological foundations of Messianic Judaism. I think more than anybody else in the world, he is the one that came down with that message from Sinai and laid the foundations of the Jewish roots of the faith. But I want to tell you something else. And I don't think other than maybe his wife and kids, I don't know if there's anybody who knows him any better than I do. This man is a humble man. He's like Moses. He said Moses was the most humble man on the earth. And he took us and we said, he said, we need to learn from these people. Now, I didn't win because I was his prophet at the time. I said, we don't need to leave from those Gentiles. Man, we got all the anointing we need. He said, no, no, get over here. Come on. And we went over there and we got down on our knees before the prophets were here. We did not tell them anything about Messianic Jews. And we said, you have a prophetic anointing. We don't have it. Put your hands upon us. Prophesy over us. Give us the anointing. We're going to humble ourselves to do that. 
And it's because of that I believe that 15, 16 years later it's, it's also coming around the different because God says you've got to take out the beam in your own eye first and then you can help somebody else take the beam, the speck out of their own eye. We had to come here first 16 years ago and say we've got a big beam in our eye. We don't have prophetic ministry in Messianic Judaism. Help us take the beam out of our eye. And so maybe we're coming 16 years later and say okay, well you've got a little speck too. Help us, help us to see this on the eye, on the eye, on the prophetic ministry but I want to tell you that Dan is, is a mosaic figure. I really believe that. And he's a humble man. And just as the people in the time of Moses did not believe that and they accused him of arrogance at the time he was, he was actually being humble. Dan is humble and people accuse him of being arrogant. He's not arrogant, but he's standing on the foundations of what he believes, what he knows that God has given him. And people have misinterpreted that as arrogant. But he's humble. He had to drag me over here. I was in pride. He was in humility. He dragged me over. He said, you, th- you may think you're a prophet. No way. You come over here and have some real prophets lay hands upon you and show you what that's like. And we had to come and humble ourselves and say that. So I want to tell you something about Dan as I said something about Mike. But I also want to say this to our Messianic movement. Brothers and sisters in Messianic Judaism, Messianic Jews, we need to humble ourselves and learn from our brothers and sisters in the church every single thing that they've got to offer us. Not just that Jesus is the Messiah. We've got to learn from them apostolic ministry, discipleship, fruit of the Spirit, uh, uh, systematic theology. We've got to learn from them fivefold ministry. We've got every single thing in the kingdom of God. Messianic Jews, get down off of that stinking Jewish pride and get down and humble yourselves and learn from the church. Learn from everybody. Learn from every single thing that you have. And when we finish learning from them, in another 10, 20 years, just maybe we'll be in a position to help them take a speck out of their eyes. And we need to get down and be humble and receive.